0: This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Are you looking for a system that makes it easy to track all of your expenses, income, and your budget? Is QuickBooks too much of a pain for you? It was for me, and I switched to Less Accounting, and I love it. It makes things really easy to keep track of and gives me a lot of charts and graphs that make it easy for me to look at and just know where I'm at with my expenses and everything else. One of the owners, Alan Branch, and his son have written a book for Entrepreneur's Children that talks about what entrepreneurs do and why they're important. So if you're interested in that, then go to lessaccounting.com slash hero. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by Code School. Code School offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution that sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to proxpn.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me To Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 129 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Curtis McHale. G'day. Griffin Lerner. Hi, everyone. Eric Davis. Hi. I'm Charles Maxwood, and this week we have a special guest, Matt Kern. Hello. Matt, do you want to give us your origin story? (laughs) I I use that term now because our guests are like superheroes right
1: (laughs) oh boy yeah here we go I think I'm coming on to talk about remote teams so I'll try to keep it somewhat related to that I've been consulting for a long time now I guess 12 years something like that and about five of those now have been remote well actually remote with remote teams and they've all been remote I've rarely ever actually worked on site so but, uh, yeah, I, I guess I've gone the gamut from programming language to programming language, uh, from PHP through, well, actually, I guess going way back from Perl to PHP to Ruby on Rails and Nano dabbling and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, and a lot of iOS these days. My company at the moment is called Bloomcrush. It's gone through iterations probably as much as our software does, I guess. <laughs> so that's the current iteration <laughs> of it anyway. And uh, I guess, yeah, we're... Uh, between eight and 10 people typically. I think right now we're eight. And yeah, that's a decent enough summary, I think.
0: Awesome. But you didn't use the terms mild-mannered.
1: No, I didn't. I'm not wearing glasses right now either. So (laughs) contact, sorry.
0: (laughs) So if you put on a cape, we'll know who you are.
1: Oh, the cape's in the closet.
0: Uh Got it. Awesome. So do you usually wind up leading the teams or working on the teams or, you know, where are you kind of at with remote teams?
1: That changes a lot. I guess uh, these days, mostly I set teams up and then I'm kind of, I, I bounce in and out of project management for most of the projects. We tend to only have a few projects at a time. So I try to stay pretty hands on, but I also have a great team. So it helps a lot. And actually that's probably the thing that I've learned the most is that the team matters more than anything else. And all of the guys that I have working for me have all worked remotely for quite some time too. So yeah, I I do a little bit of both, and oftentimes I will work on the project as well. But uh, these days, there's enough work to keep me busy outside of that. I haven't done a lot of that of of late. So
0: I have to ask, before we get into how you manage your team, I'm really curious how you make a transition from being the guy to being the boss, or to being the guy that built the team. Because I think that's relevant to managing the team once you get it up and together.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think I probably, from what I've heard on the show so far in past episodes, I think my story is pretty similar to everyone else's where I started off as a solo freelancer and eventually just had too much work to take on and then brought in one guy and then that kind of turned to two guys and then it continued to grow. And I've always tried to keep a relatively small team. There's not really any real good reason for that other than the fact that I can't quite clone myself yet. So it's kind of been an organic transition, I guess I'd say. And as far as it being remote, it was sort of out of necessity because I've always lived in kind of strange places these days. I'm in France and typically I live in Bend, Oregon, which is kind of close enough to some of the tech centers of the West Coast, but it's just far enough away that there's not a lot of development talent there. Although that is changing, I suppose. So it's always I've always had to be remote because of places that I've chosen to live. So, you know, I've had as many as I think one or two guys at a time working in the same city, but even when we've worked in the same city, it's never been in the same office. I've always kind of looked at an office as overhead that uh, isn't really necessary and I like my margins the way they are, so.
0: Cool. So once you get to enough people to where you're, it sounds like you're spending more time managing the team than actually working in the project itself. Yeah, these days. So what what do you do? What does your day look like?
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of sales these days. Actually, most, most of it I'd say is managing the client, not managing the team. I think client expectations are probably the hardest thing in managing a remote team because, uh, well, and especially in, in some of these cases, uh, we started off as sort of less remote, I would say, maybe the same state. And then I decided to go off to Europe for a while. So we became very remote and, and then we had time zone issues and so on and so forth. So I spend, I would say, like at least 50%, maybe 70% of every day working with the client and multiple clients for the multiple projects. And then outside of that, trying to keep the pipeline full, which is always a fair amount of work for all of us, I think. So I would say that I spend much less time managing my team than, than my clients. But at the same time, there is a need, even with strong strong leads, I end up spending a fair amount of time with making sure that everyone's still on track. It, it is... I think the key to the remote team thing so far has been like over communication. Everybody is always in campfire and available on chat and without that bit, including the client, by the way, we also have our clients in our, in our campfires. There's always a back channel, of course, but uh, they don't always know that. So hopefully not all of them are listening, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably most of my time is managing the client. And that doesn't mean necessarily like requirements gathering. And it's a lot of it is just status updates. I kind of despise meetings. So I try to keep them to a minimum. And that's probably most of the reason that we use Campfire so much. You know, we can keep the client pretty abreast of of things that are happening through Campfire without having to have meetings. But we do, I, I do have at least a weekly meeting with every one of my clients and some of them, a couple of them. So.
2: And when you say weekly meeting, obviously, then it's going to be remote, right?
1: Yeah, of course. So we kind of bounced back and forth between technologies on this from Skype to Hangout, but Hangout's really been probably the most enabling technology that we've used for the remote team thing because Without it, FaceTime is pretty much impossible. I've got a team as far flung as um, most of my teams typically are. So, so a typical team for us is, is, uh, well, these days, like I said, I'm in Europe and then one of the bigger projects we have going right now, I've got a great dev in Germany, another one in Vancouver, Washington, another one in the UK. And then of course me bouncing in and out of it. Got a guy in Ecuador. Um, I kind of have always just taken the tack of hiring the best talent I could find wherever it is and figuring out how to make it work later. And that's worked out pretty well so far. So yeah, it also helps if you like your team. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're dealing with time zones like we are, there's a lot of time that you may not actually be billing or working, but you're still in channel, kind of responding to things where you need to. So it makes a big difference to like hanging out with the, the people, at least, you know, hanging out in, in terms of IRC or, or campfire.
0: So how do you find your people? Especially since they're near shore or offshore.
1: Yeah, entirely word of mouth. Boy, I don't think I've ever looked at a resume or uh, (laughs) anything like that. It's always word of mouth. Usually I'll find one person and that person will lead to another and that person will lead to another. And uh, that's pretty much the way that that works. And I I don't know. I, I mean, I think as long as you're relatively well connected in the community, I think it's pretty easy to find people. The challenge is finding people that are willing to take on Contracting full time, and I hire. I, when I say hire, I run kind of a strange model. At least I think it's strange, anyway. And, and from what I've seen, it's it's relatively strange. But I don't I don't hire any employees. Actually, all of my people are subcontractors. And I've I've toyed with the idea of of taking that to the opposite extreme and having everybody be employees or or asking them if they want to. And in almost every case, the, my guys have all said they'd rather remain contractors. I don't know if that's a if that's a reflection on me or not. It could be, but I think for the most part. They enjoy their freedom and I pay them better because they're contractors. And pretty much everybody that I've ever worked with has stuck around unless the client work itself has has just burned them out. But uh, yeah, I I generally find a contractor or 10 and just keep working with them until something else comes up, I guess. I assume that keeping everyone as contractors
2: also makes it just simpler because you've got people in different states and different countries. And this way, you pay them a certain amount of money.
1: You don't have to worry about they're on your payroll. They're living here. They're living there, whatever. Yeah, most definitely. I think the, the, especially with the international connections, I, I can't imagine the headaches that would come out of trying to deal with the tax burdens and the paperwork and all the stuff that comes out of, of trying to have foreign employees in a U.S. country, in a U.S. company. Um, I can't. It just makes things so <laughs> simple. How can
2: you? <laughs> you're, you're, you're a wise man. Don't do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's worked out real well. You know, honestly, the only tough thing about the international thing that I think I've run into really is banking. Some of the some of the countries out there, uh, namely Ecuador, can be a little bit of a challenge to get wires to do. Um, so most of my guys, at least two, have a have a U.S. connection uh, where they can have you know a U.S. bank account, and so I just transfer their money there. And otherwise, yeah, the, the international wire thing is a bit of a pain, but tolerable anyway. It's a lot better than the paperwork that comes along with the other options. So
0: yeah, I have a subcontractor in Argentina, and we've jumped through several hoops before we found a way that routinely works for me to pay him. So.
1: I was just going to say, I think that's the biggest, getting it initially set up and then it's pretty simple. it it actually depends on your bank a fair amount too. And I use a pretty small local bank in in small town Bend, Oregon. So it's been a little bit challenging, but it seems to work out okay.
2: Just to chime in on this uh, subject, I I have this guy who's working for me from Ukraine doing some subcontracting. And it's this whole complicated situation with a client and he's in the U.S. and he's paying me to the development and I'm managing and I'm going to – so anyway, after a whole period when I thought, okay, everything's going to be really settled, I went to the bank two days ago, three days ago. said, so I want to make a wire to Ukraine. They said, you can't do that. They're in a state of war. We don't transfer <laughs> to Ukraine now. I was like, first, right. first of all, I don't know if Israel's really in a, a situation to be making, like, pointy fingers. But second of all, really? So we had to do I, – they, I, they were yelling, and I was yelling at them. It was a lot of scrambling to figure out who's doing what, where, when. Finally, they got back to me today and said, yes, it is possible because it's not in Crimea. It's elsewhere.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't had that problem yet, but that's pretty incredible.
0: <laughs> you mentioned that you kind of overdo it on the communication. I'm wondering, are there specific things that you – Make sure that you communicate about, are there certain processes that you follow when you communicate certain things? Yeah. So I
1: think, I think actually a lot of it is less. When I say over communicate, I think I'm, I'm more specifically saying that we use tools that allow us to keep the client in very close touch with what's going on. Mm-hmm. So we use Basecamp, you know, we use kind of the, the standard things that, that you know, that maybe you don't use Basecamp and Campfire. Maybe you use HipChat and another, another product, but whatever. Most consulting companies these days are using something to manage the product or something right. like that. Right. But. Most of our communication doesn't happen in those channels. I, at least in Basecamp, I try to avoid Basecamp like the plague because it's so like slow back and forth and it doesn't, you know, everybody knows the problems with Basecamp. But between Campfire and sending notifications, not too many, but enough so that the client can be aware of what's being committed. And in most of the cases, my clients are not sophisticated enough to, you know, parse and read a, a git commit log. So it's just to show that that there is work happening and that it is in this general area. And my team is very disciplined when it comes to things like Git commit logs. We use GitHub issues for most of our communication around, you know, features and stories and story breakdowns. And we really try to keep the tooling as simple as possible, but just enough that people are able to keep up without having to ping each other. I think we sort of follow a similar approach to what, what I've heard GitHub does, where they try to make it so that everyone can work as asynchronously as possible, but that the information is out there when you need it. I think there is a tendency to over-communicate on a remote team, which is just as deadly as under-communicating. And I think it, a lot of it just takes time and experience and gelling with the team and the client to figure out what the appropriate level of communication is. But really, well, most
2: of it is, is. Let me ask you about that because we, we've been having a little conversation, some joking in the back channel here about overcommunication. First of all, do you mean overcommunication within the team or overcommunication with a client? And second of all, like, what does that mean? Does that just mean too much information, too many messages instead of you know, just giving a daily summary? Give us
1: some examples of what overcommunication would be like.
0: Yeah, I was thinking signal to noise, but I'm not sure what you mean either.
1: Yeah, well, it is somewhat a function of signal to noise. I think we have, a, at least in my experience. Uh, we have less of a tendency to over communicate because we're generally pretty busy with things. But the client can over you and I trying to parse out huge brain dumps of you know fifteen different stories in one one email. And also, when things get dumped into several different channels, it's also a waste of time. So I think when I'm saying over communicate, I'm, I'm generally talking about the client over communicating with us, which is not a bad problem to have, except for the fact that it can be a pretty large sap on the project if you have to spend too much time trying to figure out what needs to get done because it's coming in email and it's coming in and it's coming, you know, I guess resolving those multiple channels can be difficult. So I think that's probably more what I'm talking about when I say it's possible to overcommunicate. And in, in general, I personally think it is possible to overcommunicate. By that, I mean like spending too much time hashing out an issue that may not actually even be to the forefront. So one, one of the things that we, we try to do pretty rigorously is we don't really keep super close track of things as far as wish list type things that clients may want. Like, oh, I'm, I, you know, we should do this one thing and they'll mention it once. We don't go run and write that down somewhere. Generally, I don't write anything down until I've heard it at least a couple of times, because if it only said once, it's not a pain point. It's not something that needs to be solved. If I hear it several times, then I will write it down and it will bubble up again. So I think a lot of it depends on how much your clients communicate with you to sort of find that balance. Does that answer your question at all?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. One other question I have is what types of things do you communicate in your task tracking system, for lack of a better term, and what kinds of things do you communicate in your other systems like your chat or, you know, maybe a wiki for documentation or things like that?
1: Yeah, so we pretty much just use, we, we're doing as simple as possible, like I said. So, so most of our, most of our communication happens in Campfire and GitHub and sometimes in code. So, uh, you know, it, we don't keep wikis. We keep that stuff in a readme or uh, otherwise in, in the code bases themselves. Our issue management is all in GitHub issues, and we just use we make very heavy use of uh, pull requests and the ability to do the checkmark stuff as tasks in GFM. I think is uh, in, in a GitHub library Markdown is really useful. So our, our issues tend to be really detailed, but then it's nice because we can track the comments pretty easily and the code with those comments in that issue itself. And that's worked out really well for us. We used to use a whole lot of other tools and we've really streamlined over the last, I'd say two years and watched a lot of the tools that we used to use sort of fall away because they're just not that necessary anymore. Uh, oh, and then I should also mention you, you were asking like what types of things go and what types of communication channels in general. This is probably the hardest thing to train your clients on because they <laughs> most clients have never worked this way before. So I think kind of holding their hands and being patient with them at the beginning as they spew across multiple tools is is pretty tough. But it it pays off dividends in the end. And the way that we generally approach it is, you know, when we first open a Basecamp project, we kind of set out that this is for like things that we want to archive for later or that don't require a whole lot of discussion that are kind of just, you know, a place to keep things that don't need responses right away. And please never send me an email (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and then campfire is generally like for things that you know if it's if you need an answer now you may not get the answer right away but you'll get a faster answer there than you will in base camp and just in general things that are that need a little bit more um synchronous communication but like i said we still keep it relatively async because i don't expect people to pull off of what they're doing to answer a question in base camp or in a campfire i really wish those two tools were named something a little bit more disparate so I didn't always confuse them. And then, yeah, the, the stuff that's actually issue-related, pretty much like design like that all ends up in GitHub issues. So it, it takes a little bit of time to get to the point that the types of communication are well demarcated, but it does eventually fall out. And again, I think this depends on more than anything else on your team being rigorous about their own communication and not letting those lines blur, because once the lines blur to the client, then it all, all bets are off and you have to retrain. It's a little bit like like, like housebreaking a pet.
2: I I was curious to know if your clients were technical, non-technical companies, a a mix, you know, if you found differences in the way you want to communicate and have to communicate
1: with those different kinds of clients. Yes, totally different. And we do have a mix. We're kind of all over the board as this, as, as the types of gigs we take on. And I, you know, I definitely have my preferences. I would say from an ease of contract perspective, but I definitely prefer the more technical clients. You know, if there's if you're taking on a, a startup where one of the founding members is a is an engineer, that tends to make things a little bit easier. But it can also make things more difficult, of course, um, if they, you know, are set in their ways about the way they do things and they want you to follow their procedures instead of uh, yours. Usually, we'll walk from a a contract like that. But for the non technical, uh, for those guys, you really have to hold their hands the entire time, uh, at least for the first few weeks of the contract. And oftentimes like gentle nudging reminders over and over and over and over. You know, you'll get an email and be like, Hey, this would this is a great email, thanks so much, but this would have really been better suited for Basecamp so we could keep track of it. So it really does depend on the on the type of client. The non technical needs way more hand holding because they're just not used to the tools. Like even getting something like Google Hangouts working, which is really simple <laughs> most of the time, except when it doesn't work, can be a real challenge for, for a non technical user. Is like it- even just finding it.
0: Is it counterproductive to copy it over there for them for the first little while and say, okay, I'm putting this in the system and I will reply to you there?
1: No, absolutely not. We do that all the time, in fact. Or actually, more common than that, I will ask them to do it. And if they don't do it within a day or two, then I'll go back and do it. Again, like this all requires a fair amount of, it almost feels like babysitting, but it's really worth it. I, I mean, I don't know how many of you are parents, but it's like having younger children and, and spending time with them and working with them to do the things that you know are the right way to do things. That will pay off in the end, and then reaping the benefits as they become well, up until teenager, maybe.
2: Yes, my, my children are very appreciative for all the lessons I give them for how to live a better life. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I left out the teenager part. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 oh they were they were grateful and thankful and non-sarcastic long before they were teenagers. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, I kind of want to change tactics a little bit and talk a little bit more about how do you because i'm I'm in the mode where I have been selling myself and my services for so long that now that I've kind of got a guy and I'm looking to hire another guy or you know another programmer, how do you make that transition marketing wise
1: oh boy that's that is a good question you know like i said we when we started it was pretty organic transition at first although I will say that that my company as it currently exists i i I'm now actually I'm only the the only employee even. But before this, I had worked with a a business partner and he was sort of crucial in making this transition for for me, actually. In other words, kind of prodding me along to like, look, there's more work. Don't turn it down. Let's take it. And, you know, we know plenty of people and we all like to work together. So let's make it happen. Uh, To be honest, I I have a hard time answering this question because the marketing piece, I don't market almost at all. Um, In fact, in my 12 years of consulting, I have never had more than a placeholder page for my website. (laughs) And still is the case, there's not even contact information because I can't keep up with it. So from the marketing perspective, I really can't answer the question. I wish I could. But from the sales perspective, I don't think it's a big difference because my teams, I hire, again, subcontractors, but I I hire better than myself. That's what I've always done. It's I've always believed in surrounding myself with smarter people than me. And I've been successful at that with this company. So for me to sell... My team is like selling myself, but like way better. <laughs> so it's 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 easy. I think it's a little harder when you start, the, the numbers start to creep up pretty high and our rates are pretty high. And so you can deal with pretty quickly with numbers that make clients uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, you still have to just ask for it. It's the only way you get those rates. And um, I've heard it many times on this podcast even that you have to sell for what you think uh, you're worth. And I know that my team is that good. So it's not really that hard.
0: Yeah, I totally agree on the count of you know sell for what you're worth and ask for you know your value from the client. The thing is, is that when I try and do some of the selling, a lot of times they'll talk to me. Well, where's your team located? And I'm kind of like, well, we're we're all over the place. And then they start asking what countries and (laughs) right, right, you know. And so then I tell them, well, you know, there's me and there's my guy in Argentina, and I've got a few other folks that I work with here stateside, and you know, blah blah blah. And they get worried about the guy offshore or or, near yeah, of shore, or they get you know they get worried about this or that and you know they trust me but they've heard nightmare stories or they've actually hired offshore and had trouble and so you know they're really leery i mean even if they were in a first world country and instead of uh you know whatever south america is second or third world i guess though i don't i yeah. don't think they're that set back that far but anyway you know they're emerging markets and things
1: I think you hit on two things there. One is, yeah, there's a lot of clients that, that are really, really, really edgy about the offshoring thing in particular. I think, I think we see less of it now because it's become more and more commonplace and it doesn't necessarily have the connotations that it did, say, 10 years ago. The sad thing is that it it really does, like, when, when that question of where are your guys located comes up, it's always a tough one to, to handle because there are certain countries, unfortunately, that no matter what you say, what, and, and they tend to be, countries like india and the eastern bloc that just have this reputation of not being up to par which is unfortunate because it's ridiculous the way that i generally handle that well one i don't have i actually don't have any people in in either of those places right now so it hasn't been a problem but i have in the past and generally the way that i handle it is that i don't talk about it as a offshoring ever and as soon as they start to talk about offshoring i reposition it uh the other thing that i'll do is tell them that you know look I hire the best people that I can find no matter where they live. I also pay my people the same no matter where they live. So it's not like I'm looking to save a buck and find somebody in a in a country that has a less uh, privileged position economically. But that seems to generally steer them away from that concern. And there is some level of, you know, if you're talking to a client that's really, really putting up a lot of objections around the remote thing, they're not going to want to work with me either. Because I'm remote, and I never promise to stay in one place. Generally, and again, this uh, this comes out of being in in places that tend to be either kind of newly entrepreneurial places or places that there just isn't much market for the work that I do. But I like to travel and like to be in places that I want to live. So I would say that at some level, you have to cut your loss if a client's putting up too much of a front on it. But in general, I think it's pretty easy if if they're talking to you and they know that you're remote already it should be relatively easy to transfer that into a remote team. Now, the other thing that I think you touched on was that, uh, and this is a problem that I've always had, and I'm just now starting to get out of, is this notion of clients coming along and wanting to hire you. And this goes back to our earlier conversation around the, you know, how do you make the transition from selling yourself to selling the team? And I think that most of that for me has come out of like just forcing the issue, (laughs) like, Yes, I, I'm more than happy to work with you. And yes, I will be, you know, I have oversight over all of my teams. And yet I promise you, <laughs> you trust me because you, you know, you're wanting to hire me based on my name, but I promise you that I have hired better than me, like hands down. And at that point, the argument pretty much goes away. And again, if there's too much of a pushback on it, then it's just not the right client and you move on. But in general, those are, those are the two things that I think come up the most often with the setup that I'm running right now and that you're about to, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, yeah. Let, let me just respond as well. Because, like, I, I've i heard these objections too. It sounds like you actually handle them or seem to handle them better than I do in many ways because a lot of times people will, with people I speak to, they're not concerned about where the people are offshoring from as a matter of quality. They're just worried about, oh, you're not in my time zone. You're not local. And right, so right. I've definitely found, and I mean, like you're in France now. I live in Israel. I've definitely found that just telling, listen, I grew up in the U.S., I have degrees, high school, college degrees from the U.S. Like, my English is fine. I work crazy hours. You will hear from me. I'm available during your business day. Communication is not going to be an issue. And some people buy it and some people don't. And the ones who buy it turn out to be generally good clients because there's already that element of trust to some degree. Totally. Um, but I've definitely been, shall we say, less successful than it sounds like you've been at sort of selling people who work for me to work with these people because they – you know, they come to me and they're like, oh, wow, we want to work with you. We heard about you. And I say, well, I can give you, you know, a few hours a week, but the day-to-day coding is going to be done by someone else. And I think that's actually good for them because it means they have someone dedicated and working on the project, but they don't always see it that way. And it definitely takes some convincing. And again, some people take it more than others. And those who take it, again, turn out to be good clients generally and, and pretty satisfied.
1: Yeah, but that's a great that's a great way to handle it is by saying, you know, you can have some of my time. But here's here's the two things that are gonna happen. One is you can't have all of it because I don't have it. Two, if you want some of it, it's gonna cost even more. I mean, if you wow, this isn't even a word, I don't think, disincentivize having you on the team. Like you said, they either go away or they stick around. And if they decide that they want you five hours a week and you tell them, you know, that your rate is five hundred bucks an hour, okay. That's not a bad thing. So and I think it is really key too that what the the, the the clients that, that will stick around for that, the clients that will reason with you on this, those are the clients that you want anyway. The clients that just can't get it out of their heads that this isn't the best thing for them, they're going to not be great clients because they're already not trusting you and, and you're starting off on the wrong foot. So yeah, I think you really have to build that trust up front. And if they're not there, then you move on.
0: One of the things that I I've had come up with working with remote teams is that a lot of times, you know, somebody will go off for several days working on some branch of, you know, or some feature and then they come back and they're done and things have moved on since then, you know, so they haven't kept up or if they have kept up, there was so much going on otherwise that they couldn't quite keep up. Is there a way to manage things so that you don't run into that problem?
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, we we used to do daily stand-ups and we still do quite a few stand-ups, but during the summer it's a little bit harder. In general, I think it's it's just important that you've got somebody on point that's watching. And I don't mean like watching like Big Brother, like over your shoulder. But I mean, like, you do have to pay attention. And this is one of the reasons that I think I spend a fair amount of my time running it between projects. And it's something that if I was fully honest, I would like to not spend so much time doing. But I think the way that the business is set up now kind of requires it until, like I said, I can clone myself. So the way that I handle it is just by being kind of pretty deeply involved in each of the projects. It doesn't necessarily mean that I know everything that's going on in every project that's running, but I do keep pretty in touch with those projects. So there isn't really a chance for a few days of off on a branch that nobody really knows what you're doing, or if it's still relevant to the thing that you're supposed to be working on. We tend to work on pretty short uh, iterations anyway. So that kind of solves the problem as it is. And then it's just that being in constant contact again. It also helps to have, we're pretty, well, I, I, we're a pretty flat organization, uh, but I do tend to put somebody in, uh, if it's a larger team, a team of maybe three or four people or a team that I know that I'm going to need a little bit more bandwidth for management than I can give. I definitely like to have one of my guys be more active in the management role, just kind of making sure that things are prioritized and that people have tasks and that those tasks are being worked on appropriately. And I I think a lot of that, the success of that depends on the person being Involved in the project, I don't have teams big enough that I really need a project manager separate. Uh, and if I do, I tend to fill that role because I don't think it's enough of a role on the projects that we happen to work on. I'm sure there are projects that require that, but that's those just haven't been the ones that we've been tackling. So,
2: I've actually found uh, in talking to some clients that that's a huge advantage in getting business. Like I spoke to some people where they say, okay, so like you're a developer, and the people who work for you are developers. And are we going to have to work with a project manager like to communicate with you? And when I yeah. say, no, no, you'll be talking to me and to the developers, and we're all not only good at software, but we're good at talking to people, there's this huge sigh of relief of, oh, my God, less bureaucracy to deal with, thank goodness.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> I found the exact same thing, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I think I, my experience is along those same lines.
1: It's funny, once people get past the, like, oh, my God, you're a developer and you can talk to people, <laughs> like... Once that's gone, it, it's the best thing they've ever heard. <laughs>
0: well, and it's not just that, but it's, it's like, okay, well, we've been talking about this. You understand where I'm coming from, and you want to hand me off to someone else? I mean, right. it, just, it, it just doesn't work.
1: Um, well, and it's one it's one less layer of, of indirection, of abstraction, too, yeah. right? And, and it's just more efficient. Uh, again, I'm sure there are t- there are times where it's probably not a bad idea. I just I haven't seen them yet. So the one thing I will say about that real quick, time zones have to come up at some point. Uh, Ruben, you talked about it just briefly, but the time zone thing is difficult. I, I, I won't lie about that. That's definitely the hardest thing to deal with, with this distributed team thing, especially when you're distributed. It's one thing to be distributed across the US, you know, like you got a worker in California, you got a worker in New York. That's a decent time zone change. It's a whole nother story when you're dealing with the rest of the world. Um, so one of the ways that we handle that is that I don't like making people work. Well, first of all, I can't make people do anything and they're all subcontractors. So that's one benefit. But, uh, I don't like asking my, my, uh, people to work
0: off hours really
1: late at night. Yeah. But I do need some overlap. And generally I kind of let people make their own hours and say, like, look, let's see how this project goes. If this project needs more overlap, then let's kind of float towards that, that ideal, I guess. And if it needs less, then we can float towards the other ideal of, of a normal working day. And it seems to work pretty well. I think, again, this probably is a function of working with a great team, that these guys have done this for a long time. And so generally, you know, if there's work to be done that needs to get done at a certain time and there needs to be communication, then people show up. And the, probably the biggest downside to this is that I think, especially for those of us that are in Europe, we end up working longer days, but maybe not always working. In other words, you're kind of available. Like, you, you get up and you're do you thing, and then you start working at like 12 or 1, and you're not really working yet, but you're kind of working, <laughs> and then really it starts in earnest much later. So your days end up much longer, but um, you may not be getting as much done in a compressed amount of time. So that's probably the biggest downside to this. If you can handle it, it's great. If it drives you insane to sometimes have to wait till two o'clock in the morning to have a call, then it's probably not for you. Or don't move to Europe is the other option, I suppose. Oh, and that's the other thing that I do is I also, I, I'm pretty rigorous and strict about like, we don't do calls after this time. The discipline, it's so much of it is about discipline, really.
0: So one other thing that I ran into when I was uh, a part of a remote team is that our project manager, they actually had a project manager at this particular client, and he liked to have these super long meetings for like estimations and things. And I'm just not a fan of sitting and talking for five hours about what we're going to do. I'd rather just do it. But some of that needs to happen. I mean, a lot of times the client wants to know when stuff's going to be done or, you know, how much or how long and and all that stuff. Do you just do that or do you have your team kind of collaborate on estimates somehow or how do you handle that?
1: This may sound somewhat ludicrous, but we don't do estimates. We'll do some pointing and some basic, basic estimations. But yeah, that's all I'm looking for. Yeah, to the client they don't get estimates on anything. We just work by the hour or by the week. Actually, mostly we work by the week this, these days. I can, Actually, I can't even say that anymore. By the week or by the month these days. But yeah, internally, we have to have those discussions. But really, those fall more out of the GitHub issues, I think. And we don't so much formalize the pointing anymore. And a lot of that is just been pretty assertive about saying, like, no, we don't have, like, you know, I'll give you a, like kind of a loose ballpark, off-the-cuff idea as to when it will be delivered, but, you know... We don't do it. And it, again, the clients that don't trust us don't stick around and the clients that do, do. Um, Uh, part part of that. I'm very impressed. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it doesn't always work. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not perfect, but I think part of that is that we, we also run super low obligation contracts. So if you want to work with us for 15 minutes and it doesn't work out, then you pay for 15 minutes and go away. But I think that that also puts a fair amount of trust. I think it offers a fair amount of trust anyway, that the client can choose to take or not. So, like I said, it doesn't always work. There are always some clients that just insist on, you know, we have to have estimates. And generally we'll just say, well, look, that's not how we work. So if you want to find somebody that does that, then there are lots of firms that are more than happy to do that. And you'll find out why we don't do it.
2: (laughs) I'm impressed not only because like as a general strategy, this is really impressive. And it's nice that you're able to get such trust with your clients. But I'm dealing now with a client where we'll see if I decide to continue with them or they decide to continue with me. I mean, basically we just worked on stuff for about. Three months now, and they have been griping non-stop about how, oh, well, you're going over your estimates, you're going over your estimates, you're going over your estimates. And so a friend of mine who pulled me into this project and was like the acting CTO. Finally got fed up with this and yesterday put together a whole PowerPoint for the CEO of the company and showed that yes, in the first phase, we delivered two days late and we're 13% over budget. And the second phase, we delivered on time and we're 3% over budget. But in each case, we also delivered three times as much functionality as they originally asked for. Like, but no one's been talking about that. They've just been talking about how, oh, but your original estimate said X and Y and Z. And right, it is right. sh- such a torturous relationship to deal with because they're always looking at the dark side of things and never looking at, but wait, you have a working application, you can actually
1: launch, you can make money now. Yeah, I think that's the problem with estimates. And like I said, it it doesn't work for all clients and it's sure as hell doesn't work with all teams, but if you have the right team, it it can work. And again, it doesn't work for for every project we've ever worked on. And yes, of course, we get people to get upset and say, you haven't done this or you haven't done that. But the nice thing is that we can always say, yeah, but we never told you we were going to. So
0: (laughs) yeah, for for me, the... uh... The estimates, like the pointing, if you're non-technical, basically you just assign a complexity or you know similar value to it. The thing that's nice is that then you can do points, which don't really mean anything, but you can actually then kind of track and say, okay, we slowed way down this week, what's going on? Or things like that, which is nice. But yeah, uh, yeah, with the estimates, with clients, I start to sound like a broken record while I'm doing the estimate. This is just an estimate. It's It's just a guess. 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 And then turn around and when you're off the estimate over or under or whatever, then they're like, but that was nowhere close to the estimate. And I'm sitting there going, I didn't drill into you. This is just a guess. This is just a guess. It's just a guess.
1: Yeah, right, right. I think it, it just by putting the estimate out there. I think it just it gives them something to fixate on, right? So it doesn't matter that you delivered all those things. That the, what you didn't do is what they're going to fixate on. The other way that I will often explain why we don't do estimates, I, I don't explain it very often because if I have to explain it too often, then it's it's obviously not working anyway. But if I, you know, give it a few shots. And generally, what I'll say is that look, we can come up with a, an estimate. It's just going to be an estimate at the end anyway. So you're not any closer to what you wanted anyway, okay. and. The reality is it's going to take us probably, depending on the task that you want us to do or the story that we're going to implement, it may take me five minutes to estimate or it may take me uh, a week to break a story down into other things. And we just tend to like to do things a little bit more organic than that. In fact, the current name of my company is is based much around this notion of like software as gardening and software as like nurturing and tending instead of this like really science-driven, technical, like sterile (laughs) variety of company names that are out there, I suppose. So this comes somewhat from that, that we like to be a little bit more organic about the way that this stuff works. And I like efficiency. And honestly, what what I think ends up happening pretty quickly in most of our projects is that the clients see the result and see that it actually does work this way and stop asking for estimates. And sometimes they'll still ask, but that's usually when somebody that's not involved in the project is coming up and saying, like, why is this costing so much?
0: Now, when people need to collaborate on a feature, do you just let them figure out like the timing? So if there is a time zone issue, you just let them figure out who's going to get up early or who's going to stay up late to make it work?
1: I do try to be somewhat strategic (laughs) about the teams that I put together. So I try to keep time zones as close as I can. Or if there's a client in New York, you know, New York... The East Coast clients are nice because, uh, they can work pretty much in any time zone. Uh, I guess there's a few places in the world that it doesn't work. Uh, Japan, maybe it's a little difficult, but in general, they're fine with the Europe. They're, they're fine with the West Coast time zone. Right. Cause it's you're within harder. three or four hours, right? Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are easy to deal with. What, what becomes hard is when you're like dealing with a client that's, you know, in the, on the West Coast and you're say the person that you want to put on the project is, uh, in Poland or something. So. I generally try to keep the teams as close in time zone as possible, but I will never ever compromise a team for time zones. It'll always be the right team for this, for this particular job. So one of the teams that I have right now is has somebody in Canada and BC. And, uh, I think the furthest East time zone would be central European. So like I said, I, I, I don't worry about that too much. And as far as how they handle their workloads, yeah, I, I leave it up to them for the most part. I wish I had like the magic bullet for this stuff. And if I do, it is really just hiring well. It's, it's finding the right people for these tasks, for these, for these teams, because they do a good job of breaking themselves up into the time blocks that need to happen. It also helps sometimes, I think, if you can keep things like somewhat, uh, like break the time zones on functional basis. In other words, like, like the design of farther away time zone than the engineering staff is, that doesn't matter so much. And, and again, actually speaking of time zones, one of the other nice cells, cells on a time zone thing, especially for projects that have tight deadlines, which sort of a misnomer, we really don't deal with deadlines either. But anyway, it's nice to pitch it as a benefit that people are in multiple time zones because you have Developers working practically around the clock. And that it's a, it's a dangerous one because it was one that was thrown around a lot back in the days of, of offshoring for uh, cost benefit. But some clients like to hear it and just kind of have to gauge your, your client on it.
0: I'd like to hear a little bit more about your hiring process. So you said that mostly, you know, people know who you are, you've worked with somebody who knows them. And so that's how you find people. But how do you make sure that they're a good fit for this kind of thing?
1: Well, for the most part, I, I need to know at least a few other people that have either worked with them or, I mean, it's it's all, it's really all word of mouth and reference based. I mean, you could, and you could actually ask me more about it. Uh, so yeah, I, boy, I, don't, I just don't really have a process around it. I, there's a, there's a fair amount in, at least I think in the, in the business that uh, the, the, the way that I've run my business of needing to find my ex business partner used to have this analogy of uh, one hand clapping and that you need to find the second hand. So I often have a case where I'll have a client that I really would like to take on, but I don't have the people because I don't run a bench, which is unfortunate. But the flip side of that is that I'll also, I'll also often run into a case where I, I know somebody that I really would like to work with. It's just come available and I can't snap them up because I don't have the client. So it's, it's been a, a bit of serendipity that I've been able to find the people that I think that I've respected and that have other contexts and other references that respect them that have been willing to come on board. And then in. Most cases, the person that I bring on board or the people that I bring on board have sort of another layer of, you know, these are people that I would like to work with. And so I make it a priority to go find, you know, to go get those guys on the team or to get those girls on the team. So uh, that's really been how I've hired. And it's pretty much been since day one.
0: Have you ever lost anyone because you don't run a bench?
1: I have, although <laughs> it was, uh yeah, it was unfortunate. It's the reason that my business partner is now my ex-business partner or at least one of them. <laughs> Yeah, we lost basically the, you know, the way that it works is you you guys know this as well as I do that you never know who's going to, what, what clients are going to roll off and when, uh, you know, you hope to have some notice, but sometimes you don't. And in this particular case, somebody that I very much would have liked to have kept on my team left because we rolled off a contract relatively suddenly because of an acquisition. and, And the, the business partner told him that he should take something else if he was worried while I was trying to say just, Hey, you know, doors closed, doors open. Don't worry about it. We'll have something. Really shortly, and uh, a week later we did, but I already lost him. So, but that's I think that's the only person that I've ever really lost.
0: So, are there any tax implications or things to hiring people outside the US or, or whatever that you have to deal with having your company, you know, in the US?
1: No, not so much. I I mean, again, this is where having the contractors, uh, the subcontractors really is an advantage. As long as you're very upfront with how the payment works and that they're responsible for all their taxes, I would say that there's probably more likelihood of the subcontractor having to kind of see UIA a little bit more than than I do for a US based business it's basically just there's an expense going out, the money goes out and uh, what they do with that money is up to them. And then it just drops right off my balance sheet. So bottom line, so No, not really. It's it's pretty simple.
0: (laughs) So there's no paperwork that you have to have so that the government will recognize that, you know, those went to somebody's to pay for contract labor?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we, there's, I I, I haven't run into a position, into a situation yet where there's, there's been the concern that most people have with running subcontractors, which is that the IRS might consider them, uh, an employee, not a, not a sub. But with uh, working with people from outside the country, uh, that's not really an issue because it right. doesn't matter. The IRS has no authority over them anyway. I do, for a couple of guys on my team, I do keep the paperwork that they give me because they're more worried about their government wanting to track it. Right. Their government wants to track down that I have invoices, that these invoices say this thing and it's for this company, that I keep that on file. So that's that's kind of the extent of the paperwork.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the picks unless there was something else we should have asked that we didn't.
1: I don't think there was anything else. I did want to touch on one more thing, which is the one of the things that I think makes our internal teams work the best. So I've talked a bit about, you know, the, the client communication and then my communication with my team. But I think there's probably an equally important, if not more important piece to all of this is the internal process between the teams, between inside an individual team, I should say. And that is that we, I guess, I don't know if it's still heretical, but we we don't pair generally. No, <laughs> no, it's crazy. Uh, and we do un- we
2: able to get software done. I, 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 it's I don't it's know. amazing.
1: It's amazing. All, all, your, all
0: your code's crap. We know it now. <laughs> yeah.
1: So we will on some things on, on on things that are particularly tough, but we actually don't. I don't even think we really think of it as pairing. It just sort of is what it is. But we do. We have a really, really, really rigorous set of code metrics that we expect to always be increasing and that goes for anybody on the team including if we're working with somebody on you know if it's a staff computation type project so we kind of train the client to do the same so there's there's that and then on top of that we also are very very strict about uh, code review as well and so i think in a lot of ways that our pairing is and again this is slightly heretical but uh, our pairing is slightly replaced by by the code review process, but everything goes through this code review process. That's, that's very, very, very detailed. And honestly, I think that that probably is one of my favorite things to watch is watching everybody review each other's code because it, it ends up like, like, you can see people learning as they're committing and then, uh, and watching the, the reviews come in. So yeah, I think, I think that's a, a pretty important piece of our process that I had left out originally that I wanted to make sure was out there. And, and actually, I think, uh, for reference on that, uh, one of my guys, Dan Cobb did a, podcast I think with the Ruby Rogues some time ago around both metrics and code review I think so that's worth looking up and listening to
0: yeah we talked to Dan on Ruby Rogues like two years ago
1: yeah a lot of these processes came out of Dan's rigor around this stuff and uh so he's been amazingly instrumental
0: cool yeah he's he's a cool guy yeah he's good so yeah so you're just measuring performance that way
1: there's been a lot of, I guess, back and forth on on code metrics, especially of late. Uh, in, in fact, where, where was that at uh, Rocklove uh, this last year? Which I'm sure I'm butchering the name of that. Comp. Peter Solnica and uh, Peter used to work for me, and Marcus does now. They did a little uh, panel there on code metrics and taking opposing opposing views on. Are do we little uh, code metrics and what does it mean and all that kind of stuff. And it's it was a real panel to be a part of. And I think that actually might be recorded too, so that might be worth looking out for people. But anyway, it's it's interesting. We, we still stay very strict about it and I think it's done wonders for our code and for our clients. I don't think that we're quite to the point that like, there's always discretion involved. I, I think these automated code tools these automated metrics tools are great uh, and we have a pretty extensive suite that runs but there's still times where the rules need to be bent uh and i think as long as there's discretion involved in that 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 the process works fine and that it's an overall trend not like uh every day it has to be better there are certain days that it's okay to to drop a little bit
0: awesome all right well uh let's go ahead and uh do the picks eric do you have some picks for us Yeah, so there's a blog post I found a few days ago called On OSS, Open Source Software, and the individual. It's a pretty short one, but it's pretty interesting because it looked at the kind of from the maintainer side of like what you kind of deal with, especially when you get a popular project or you're on a very active project. But uh, I've had a lot of the same experiences, and that's why I've kind of
2: pulled back from open source stuff as much as I used to.
0: Awesome. Curtis, what are your picks? I'm going to recommend sort of three books, sort of like nine books,
2: because two of them are
0: omnibus editions. And it's the Wool, Shift, and Dust omnibus books, I think. My Ash recommended the Wool one years ago, quite a while ago, but I read them all over a week, two weeks ago or so, and they were very, very good. Yeah, my wife really liked those books. could not convince my wife to try them, but I enjoyed <laughs> them. She liked uh, Ender's Game, but that's about as far as she goes. Nice.
2: Ruben, what are your picks? So I've got sort of one and a half picks for this week. Uh, My first pick, so uh, I think I've mentioned in the past that I really like the Slate Political Gadfest podcast. And this past week, as we're recording now, this past uh, Friday, they had this guy named Dan Carlin come in and be a, a guest panelist as well. I'd never heard about him before, but they just kept gushing about his, what he calls the Hardcore History podcast. And the series they did about World War One, which started just about this week, a hundred years ago, and I was just in Berlin, and I kept bothering my children with the fact that World War One led to World War Two, and I actually realized that I didn't know much about World War One, so I started listening to his podcast about World War One, and I never would have imagined that I would be so entranced. An hour and a half, or I guess I'm nearly two hours into a monologue about World War One history, the first of five three-hour podcasts he did. But it's still, it's pretty amazing, and it's quite detailed, but it's really helping me to understand the story. So if you're a history buff, and if you have time to listen, a train, treadmill, walking, jogging, whatever, I definitely would recommend uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, and especially uh, the ones that he did, the most recent five uh, on World War One. And the second recommendation is, uh well, I mean, I got hurt over the weekend, I'm doing okay now. But it occurred to me that if I did not have health insurance, I would really be in trouble. And Granted, everyone in Israel has health insurance, and shall we say, all other enlightened countries, but if you're a freelancer and you don't have some sort of health insurance, you should really seriously take a look at getting it. First of all, as people like to say, your health is really important, the most important thing. And second of all, you just never know when something really unexpected and tragic can happen. And so you should
1: deal with it in an intelligent way and get insurance. Anyway, those are my picks for this week.
0: Awesome! I love the I
1: love the World yeah. War One one. That's that's fantastic.
0: Yeah, definitely gonna have to check that out. I've got a couple of picks here that I'm gonna put out there. One is is I just switched my podcasting app. Um, I was using the iPhone Podcast app for a long time, and I signed up for Ruby Tapas by Avdi Grimm, and it has an RSS feed that you can get the videos from. However, you have to do HTTP basic authentication. In other words, you have to put in a username and password. And uh, the issue there is is that the podcast app doesn't play well with that. It doesn't actually download them. It'll kind of stream them, but it's still kind of busted. And so I switched over to Downcast on the iPhone, and I'm I'm really liking it. The playlist capability is better. You know, it actually works with Ruby Tapas, which is a major plus. And uh, so yeah, so now I just sit and listen to podcasts all day while I work, and I'm I'm really really enjoying it. Another pick I have is Ziki. That's xiki.org. And it's a, it's a tool. It's a command line tool. So if you're not a technical person that does a lot on the command line, you're probably not as interested. Um, I've actually integrated it with my text editor that I do my coding in. So I can actually then use the menuing and command stuff that comes with Ziki. So, uh, I, I'm going to pick that one as well. And, uh, finally, I've been playing a lot of this game. I've probably picked it in the past called Hearthstone. It's by Blizzard it's a free game um, I haven't actually put any money into it um, but I've been enjoying it and been doing all right on it so uh, so go check out hearthstone. Matt what are your picks?
1: I've got let's see I do love hearthstone by the way I just just started playing but it's pretty fun So I'll, I'll pick a game too. I just got done with a week's vacation, which I also highly recommend. I think it's the first one I've taken in like 10 years. So, but I ordered a game called Coup, a card game that I was lucky enough to play with a bunch of folks at a True North conference uh, in Sweden this year We kind of really enjoyed the game. So I picked it up so that the family could play and it's a really, really fun game. Uh, if you've ever played resistance, it's similar to that too, uh, but it's a simple game You play, you can play a lot of them in a row. It's, it's, it's a pretty lightweight game. It's, it's really fun. It's, it's definitely worth playing. It also, since you are lying and bluffing and killing and plotting, it's an interesting game to play with your family. So, so that's one. And then one more pleasure-based one, I think will we'll, I'll also pick uh, Born to Run, the book. I don't know if anyone, I don't know if that's been picked before, but uh, I find that I, I didn't used to be able to run until recently because of this book largely, and it has made an incredible difference in my productivity and I think my overall uh, enjoyment of life. So I highly recommend it. It's, it's written really well. It, it, a book about running, I know, sounds terrible, but it's actually pretty awesome. So that's another one. And then along the lines of the things that we've been talking about today, I think if anyone's ever tried the conference service, you know, I, I think over the last, oh, I don't know, four or five years, I probably tried 10 different teleconference solutions out there. Uh, they've all just completely sucked. This one definitely sucks the least. There's a couple of problems with it, but uh, they've got a great staff that's that's willing to listen and jump on the problems pretty quickly. Uh, so this this is called Uber Conference. And the greatest thing for those of you that are possibly working outside the country or that need to call in from foreign countries, they have international lines as well. Plans are pretty reasonable. And uh, yeah, it's it's been kind of a lifesaver for me. So, and there's an iOS client for it too. And then the final one I think that I'll put out there is Earth Class Mail for, again, those of you that are kind of nomads like me traveling around. Um, it's a nice way to have an address. In your home country, uh, in this case, I think it's only for the US, um, where you can send all your mail. And uh, I've heard a lot of problems with these sort of re-mailer companies, but this one has been just spectacular. They'll even take checks. And I don't mean like payments. They'll actually take checks from your clients and then you can call them and they will send them to your bank for those of us that are not lucky enough to have the cool deposit by phone thing. So yeah, those are my picks.
0: Very cool. All right. You were talking about the conference. One thing that I forgot to mention is I'm going to be speaking at AirConf in October. It's the conference that AirPair is putting on. It's all online and it's basically an introduction to freelancing. So if you aren't freelance, you want to learn how you can uh, get the details there. And I think that's all we got. Thanks for coming, Matt.
1: Thanks for having me. It was great.
0: If people want to get a hold of you or ask you questions about how all this works, is there a good way to get a hold of you?
1: Twitter would be fine. That'd be great. I'm lightcap on Twitter. <laughs> L-I-G-H-T-C-A-P and I would (laughs) email is fine uh, but uh, it's not on my website so it's matt at bloomcrush.com
0: alright well thanks for coming guys and we'll catch everybody next week working and learn from designers at Amazon and Quora developers at SoundCloud and Heroku and entrepreneurs like Patrick Ambron from Brand Yourself you can level up your design, dev and promotion skills at Level Up Con taking place October 8th and 9th in downtown Saratoga Springs, New York only two hours by train from New York City, this is the perfect place to enjoy early fall at Oktoberfest while you mingle with industry pioneers in a resort town in upstate New York. Get your ticket today at levelupcon.com. Space is extremely limited for this premium conference experience, so don't delay. Check out levelupcon.com now. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.